0: Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Dedicated to Edgar Degas, 1834 to 1917, in the centennial year of his death, Volume 3 of the Conservation Division's biennial journal, Facture: Conservation, Science, Art History, focuses on the tremendous wealth of works by Degas in the National Gallery of Art collection. The first to feature the work of a single artist, this issue includes essays by conservators, scientists, and curators. It presents insights into Degas's working methods in painting, sculpture in wax, and bronze, and works on paper, as well as a sonnet he wrote to his Little Dancer. The gallery has the third largest collection in the world of work by Degas, comprising 21 paintings, 65 sculptures, 34 drawings, 40 prints, two copper plates, and one volume of soft ground etchings. Its extensive Degas holdings and conservation resources have inspired not only groundbreaking gallery exhibitions such as Degas the Dancers, 1984, Degas at the Races, 1998, Degas Little Dancer, 2014, and Degas Cassette 2014, but also exhibitions around the world. For the public symposium, held as a centenary tribute on September 22, 2017, Richard Kendall presented the keynote address, introducing new research into Degas' interests in media and technique alongside his documented engagement with contemporary science and technology.
1: The title I chose for today, Degas, Man of Science, was chosen very deliberately and slightly mischievously. I am, of course, an art historian and not a historian of science. But I nearly became a scientist in my early years. Not everybody knows that. At high school in England, my best subjects were art and science. When I graduated, the art teachers told me to apply to art school, while the science teachers pointed me towards university. As a stubborn teenager, I opted for art and grew a beard. But I've kept up my amateur interest in in the sciences ever since. So today, I, I, I really want to pay homage to the colleagues at the National Gallery, many of whose names uh, Mary has just spelled out, who have been so exemplary over the years in applying their scientific wizardry to the world-famous collection of works of art by Edgar Degas that are housed in this great museum. Shelley Sturman, Daphne Barber, and Hoenigswold, Michel Fassini, Kimberly Schenk, and Mary Morton, and the many highly specialist colleagues who I haven't particularly interacted with, have worked through the decades to conserve, stabilize, protect, and where necessary, repair the paintings, works on paper, and sculptures under their care, always with the highest professionalism. These guys are the best. Many of the team have contributed to facture. So you can read about the individual contributions at your leisure when you buy your own copy. Hint, hint, Um, I I have read the new facture from cover to cover more than once, and recommend it highly to you all. This remarkable group of conservatives have committed themselves over the years to sharing their many insights and discoveries with a large audience. This outreach has already taken the form of articles, displays, and lectures, as well as substantial exhibitions and other public events. A lot of museums don't do this. It's a very special feature of the National Gallery. Um, Conservators in general are not always so willing to do this, as I know from long experience, and perhaps some of you, you do as well. To be fair, conservation work today is often highly technical, and does not lend itself to elucidation in the wider world. What makes it even more extraordinary that the National Gallery staff actually invite professionals from outside their discipline, including some art historians, to see what they're doing and discuss some of the issues they're addressing and sometimes puzzling over. I have spent a number of happy hours with the NGA conservation team, and needless to say, have become much better informed about the works in question and the artists they have been dealing with. Today, the National Gallery conservators have an, an honorable international tradition of reaching out to their larger public and communicating with them in various ways, as in what you're looking at today. The new edition of Facture is, among other things, a further ge- gesture in that dis- direction. A beautifully produced volume with a sequence of uh, essays that are all illus- illustrated in color. It's, it's a very beautiful publication. And it recounts step by step the procedures used in the conservation, de- conservation department as the conservators have worked on some of the items in the museum's collection. I strongly recommend the new facture to you. It's the third in the series and packed with terrific material. And best of all, Don't forget, you don't have to be a scientist to read it. It is not stuffed with jargon that is uh, uh, unapproachable by humbler folk like us. Uh, Now to my talk. And its slightly surprising title. Degas, Man of Science. On the screen, you see Degas in his 20s virtually unknown as an aspiring artist in Paris, studying and experimenting as he gradually moved forwards. I'm sure that all of you are familiar with his work in later years. How could you not be in a museum like this? The duga you are long, ac- long acquainted with was the highly original and subtly skilled artist who was a driving force behind the Impressionist exhibitions in Paris. Held between 1874 and 1886. These events marked the birth of Impressionism as the world now knows it. And Duggar was generally one of the guys who got up there, got up front, and hassled the press to come and made sure there was enough money and so forth. Um, The exhibitions that took place between 1874 and 1886 marked the birth of Impressionism as the world now knows it. And where the public began to recognize the characteristic preoccupations of Degas, Monet, Pissarro, Morisot, Cassatt, etc. Today, Degas himself is celebrated throughout the world as the painter of dancers, the artist who made the ballet respectable as a subject from contemporary art at a time when it was often seen as marginal and even unseemly in French culture. Jill, my wife, is the world authority on this, so if you have any questions, don't talk to me, find her. So you may reasonably be wondering where science comes into the story of Degas, the artist. That's the challenge I gave myself when I wrote this paper. To trace this connection, we need to step back and consider the broader context of France itself in the early and mid-19th century. During those turbulent and yet formative years, marked by the demise of the monarchy, the the French Revolution, and the Franco-Prussian War, the French had good reason to be proud of their great scientists. These had already included such major figures as the naturalist Jean Lamarck, the chemist and geologist Antoine Lavoisier, and the paleontologist George Cuvier, who also tackled evolution. So science in those years was a very big deal, and it represented not just groundbreaking discoveries, but also the promise of significant progress, such as industry, commerce, and engineering, which in turn raised the status, power, and wealth of France itself. So science was locked into French history. in in, in the mid-19th century, and this is when the Impressionist artists emerge. Bright young men, and it was mainly men, for reasons you can guess, were encouraged to study the sciences and go forth in the world to advance the fortunes and achievements of La Belle France. This eminence in the sciences had partly faded in subsequent decades, but France was still a country committed to scientific progress, and proud of its many acclaimed scientists. This preoccupation with science was not just confined to the experts. In Degas' day, there was an eruption of cheap, popular uh, publications aimed at a family readership, with titles such as La science pour tout, science for everyone. In the Impressionist years, Louis Figuier, gentleman here, was a leading figure behind several books and other projects that ranged from hard science to speculation about extraterrestrial life. On the screen, you can see an imaginative montage on the cover of one of his books called Les Merveilles de la Science, The Marvels of Science, that juxtaposes steam-driven machinery in the foreground. Do I have a pointer? Yes. Um, Down here this strange contraption here, with a dramatically modern multi-level bridge at the back here. That was the height of architectural daring at this time. And you'll see um, it has a steam engine going across the top of the bridge to the tunnel at the other side with the smoke coming out. Power and scale in this image combined to show the promise of of science. Several periodicals also related to the sciences were cheaply printed and widely read, ranging across the scientific landscape and describing the planets and the stars, the geological wonders to be found on Earth, and the exotic species of animals, birds, and insects that inhabited the globe. Smaller popular books on such topics also abounded. I even found one in a dusty Paris bookstore called simply La Lumiere, light. It's a book about light, a little tiny book like this, which covers the natural and the artificial and artificial phenomena associated with light. One chapter describes a new technique that was supposed to be useful for artists, allowing them to project an outdoor view onto a sheet of paper indoors, which could then be copied and turned into a picture. I don't think it was very successful because we haven't heard much about it, but this this junction of science and the artist's technical processes seems to me to be very telling. Even the highly respected and well-known historian, French historian, Jules Michelet, wrote a series of small books for the ordinary reader that each focused on a single aspect of nature. In titles such as La Mer, the Sea, L'Oiseau, the Bird, and L'Insect, the Insect, he combined short chapters on such topics as the microscope, the spider, and the ant with general musings about nature. Such books sold in their tens of thousands and helped to make science uh, accessible to French citizens of all ages, quite literally. On a different scale, the Exposition Universelle, you know, we all know about universal exhibitions of New York and the West Coast and so forth. Um, such exhibitions um, presented some of the truly gigantic applications of, of the sciences and attracted crowds in their hundreds of thousands. Such expositions took place in 1867 and 1878, which neatly brackets most of the Impressionist shows. Uh, The the years when the Impressionist group was establishing itself and and growing in in Paris and growing in maturity. Of course, they could have seen at first hand the vast modern machines and other scientifics scientific achievements that their nation was presenting to the world. So they knew about them, they could have read about them, they had friends who were scientists, and there's his rich ground here for for invention and and, uh, progress in the visual arts. This democratization of science would inevitably have reached some of the Impressionists in their youth, and without necessarily being aware of it, helped these artists to absorb aspects of botany, biology, physics, and related disciplines, all in the name of youthful pleasure. Retrospectively, it's interesting to note that a majority of the impressionist, uh, uh, Impressionist group later chose to live and work in the countryside, no doubt for a number of reasons. That surely included a sense of ease away from the city and a fascination with the phenomena of nature that appear in many of their pictures, trees, skies, waterways, and so on. It's endless. Uh, you've probably, the more alert of you have probably noticed that I haven't yet mentioned Degas in this context because his case is slightly different. <coughs> um, Degas was born in the huge modern city of Paris. He loved the city and he died there, a classic urbanite. Who affected a horror of rural life, but quite often escaped to friends who had country houses in later years. Uh, sorry, had, fr- fr- had friends in country houses. In later years, he chose to travel through Burgund, rural Burgundy in an open carriage pulled by a horse to visit a friend who lived there. While Degas claimed to be uneasy about the wonders of nature, he clearly knew something about them. When in Burgundy, he sent a note to a Parisian friend which in, that included the phrase, here is the country of Buffon, right? Buffon, you know about Buffon, some of you, one of the great scientists of the, in, the, in, in the history of France, who was already a classic. But Degas, who often sort of put, had a sting in his tail, added to this, to this statement, that um, Buffon's book, L'Histoire Naturelle, is the funeral of all the animals. What does that mean? I don't know. So, back to the Impressionists. Several Impressionist artists and also known to have had links with science when they were at school or in early adulthood. We know that one of France's most celebrated artists from this period, Paul Cezanne, had a close friend in his youth called Fortuné Marion, who trained as a geologist and clearly passed on some of his knowledge to Cezanne himself. I'm talking about these now. The surviving pages from one of Cezanne's sketchbooks on the screen show a crude drawing of stratified rocks, the result of disruption in the mountains near Mont-Saint-Victoire, where the young Cezanne and Marion loved to paint. This is the uh, this is the drawing in question, although there's a bit of it there as well. Cezanne knew nothing about geology, but his, his friend Marion knew it very well. And he was explaining. To, to Suzanne, how when the earth um, is pressured from underneath, from from within with, within this, the the globe, um, it 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 stratifies. The stratifications are then bro- broken and moved across somewhere, which explained what Suzanne was looking at. And if you know Suzanne's paintings, you'll know he did paint a lot of rocks, not only then but later on in his life. Marion was clearly sharing his geological knowledge with his friend. Cézanne himself never lost his fascination with rocky vistas, drawing and painting their complex structures in his native inland Provence, but also working on the coast from the bays, cliffs, and other distinctive formations that now seem almost inseparable from his art. In later years, Marion became a very prominent man of science a product of his times and education, who wrote a book about Darwinism and subsequently directed the Museum of Natural History in the Mediterranean city of Marseille. In the life of Edgar Degas, the equivalent figure to Marion was Henri Rouart, a friend from his school days when they both attended the prestigious Lycée Louis Le Grand in Paris. The Lycée dated from the 18th century and had an exceptional record for producing stellar mathematicians and to a lesser extent scientists. A near contemporary of Degas at the Lycée was the now famous painter, sorry, now famous scientist Louis Pasteur, which you must know about because he invented these painful injections we have to have at certain times. Um, known today internationally for his, for vaccination. Presumably some of this focus on the sciences rubbed off on the young schoolboy Edgar, even though he veered away towards the arts in his own career. The fact that the adult Degas was comfortable in the presence of his friend Henri Rouard, now a professional engineer, was surely due to his shared experience at Louis-le-Grand, even though their career paths had divided once they left. Henri subsequently studied at the École Polytechnique in Paris, another much admired institution with a clear scientific and technical emphasis. He later became a very successful engineer, and also developed innovative systems of refrigeration, and directed his own factory. For Degas, the lifelong Parisian and bachelor, the Rouards became a second family, who he often visited Um, he often visited and frequently chose to represent in his art. Over the years, Degas painted several members of the Rouart family, including their daughter, Hélène, and Henri's wife, also called Hélène, as well as Henri himself. On the screen is Degas' canvas, Henri Roy devant son usine, Henri Roy in front of his factory, looking both successful and prosperous, both of which is true. Here Rouart is very formally dressed, but in private he had another passion as an amateur artist, where he probably behaved a little more casually. Henri Rouart took his pastime as an artist very seriously and showed his pictures alongside the Impressionists at seven of their eight group exhibitions. He didn't sell much, and the critics almost avoided him, but nevertheless, he was very faithful to the group. Rouart was not just an occasional Sunday painter, but almost as serious about his art as he was about his profession. The work now on the screen is La Terrasse au bord de la Seine à Melun, which, is, uh, uh, which I only recently realized is now in the collection of the Musée d'Orsay in Paris, which is, when you think about it, it's quite a tribute for an, for an engineer to have one of his ama- amateur pictures in that museum. It shows a view of the town of Melun with the river Seine running through it, over on the left there, while two female bystanders, probably Roar's wife and daughter, relax elegantly in the middle distance. But also emphatic in this scene is its geometry. Note the especially strong diagonals in the foreground, this which create a series of massive triangles. Note note also the answering verticals in the slender trees, or over here, and the various skyward-pointing structures in the distant distant town. I'm well aware that a lot of painters use perspective, which is partly what we're talking about. But if there is such a thing as an engineer's landscape, I think we're looking at one here. Ruard's mastery in mathematics of mathematics and geometry as a student comes to life in this impressive painting. The concept of applying technology and science to the picture itself is, of course, very old. Leonardo da Vinci was also a famous painter-engineer, and from the Renaissance onwards it was often the case that artists had a working knowledge of basic mathematics and geometry, and sometimes a detailed familiarity with human anatomy. At that time, it was not uncommon to find artists showing off such skill, such knowledge in their work, and being admired for these very qualities. I'm sure you recognize these two. By the 19th century, of course, some of this technical uh, information I've been describing to you was, was sort of taken for granted. and it was necessary to go much further to recreate new kinds of visual experiences. Within the Impressionist group, Degas was one of the most adventurous in this respect, as the two pictures on the screen emphasize. At left is his painting Miss Lala at the Cirque Fernando, which is in the National Gallery in London, where the artist shows the circus performer from below, as seen by someone looking steeply upwards. Such vertiginous views were highly unusual in the arts at this time, but Degas was clearly exploring a more liberated notion of seeing that had been encouraged by modern technology. Two decades earlier, for example, Felix Nadar had taken advantage of this technology by flying over Paris in a hot air balloon and taking dramatic photographs of the city directly beneath him. I think think I'm right in saying he was the first person to to photograph from a balloon, but I I, I can't guarantee that. In contrast to the Miss Lala picture in Degas' painting at right, known as Ballet rehearsal, rehearsal of a ballet on stage, he seems to echo the approach taken by Nadar, but now showing us the indoor world from above, as we implicitly look downwards from elevated seats close to the theater stage and at the tops of the ballerinas' heads. Here we see the mechanics of vision tackled self-consciously and inventively by an artist who had good reason to take this particular subject very seriously. Some years earlier, Degas had realized that his own eyesight was defective. In middle age, he was already consulting with ophthalmologists in Paris and learning how to cope with special glasses that were supposed to help him. We know the names of some of these specialists, and we still have some of the unusual prescribed spectacles that he had to wear. When nobody was looking backstage at the Musée d'Orsay, I tried on a pair. I looked through Degas' glasses. Isn't that sad? Now, in a more tragic sense, therefore, Degas himself was in the hands of scientists and learning a lot about his compromised vision. It's a sign of his extreme determination and perhaps his simple obstinacy that he did not abandon his profession as a visual artist, but instead chose to work around it and even benefit from it in certain ways. By this, I mean that the heightened awareness of sight, which most of us don't think of, think about from one year to another. Can become an advantage to a practicing artist as they strive to represent the world to other eyes. As long ago as 1988, I wrote an embarrassingly long article about this subject in the Burlington Magazine, which only my mother read, I think. <laughs> um, about uh, about this very thing, and, and to do that, I consulted several modern. ophthalmologists about the evidence concerning Degas. One thing I eventually realized was that Degas was a very self-conscious looker who had learned about the functioning of eyesight the hard way and now looked at the world in a much more critical and informed state of mind. Tragic though it was, I believe that his condition made him an even more acute and better informed artist. who very deliberately challenged us to see the world afresh by consciously manipulating focus, fracturing certain forms, experimenting with viewpoints, and emphasizing light-dark contrasts. From the early years of the Impressionist movement, Degas continued to keep in touch with other friends and colleagues who had scientific expertise. One of them was Count Ludovic Le a Parisian artist and man of many talents who had inherited a lot of money and a title, and now devoted himself entirely to artistic and scientific pursuits. There you see him at left in an etching by Marcelin de Boutin, uh, which was actually included in one of the Impressionist exhibitions. Um, Among Le Pique's many and varied obsessions was landscape painting, and the breeding of uh, unusual types of dogs. This is quite a wacky guy. Some of the latter becoming the subject of etchings that he chose to include in the 1874 exhibition, separately from this. A much more substantial achievement was Le involvement with prehistoric archaeology. The height of his achievement during this period was focused on a prehistoric site in a cave in rural France, which he proceeded to excavate himself in a systematic manner. Lepic subsequently analyzed and classified each of the items he had discovered and published the results in an 1872 book with the the title Les armes et les utiles préhistoriques and uh, prehistoric arms and tools reconstituted. At right is one page from this book with his own illustrations, which Jill somehow found on the internet. Um, and you can see that they're all, they're all, they all have a, um, an identification on them. It was a, a serious thing. This ambitious and su- successful project resulted in Le Pique being elected to the Paris Anthropological Society by the highly distinguished anthropologist and anatomist Paul Broca. So Lupique also joined the growing list of scientifically-minded artists in Degas' circle. This was a period when interest in ethnology and anthropology was intense throughout Europe, partly due to the highly controversial books published by Charles Darwin in England and subsequently translated into French and other languages. Darwin has again become a somewhat contentious figure in modern America, amazingly, but in 19th century Catholic France, the reaction against his exploration of human evolution was quite violent, not least because it was seen to to contradict the Christian Bible. As relatively young and mainly liberal Parisians, some of the Impressionist artists and their friends decided to investigate the Darwinian controversy for themselves. At left is a photograph of Berthe Morisot looking particularly severe. This was a formal portrait to go in the sort of family archive, I think. She was one of Degas' artist's friends and a stalwart supporter of the Impressionist group throughout their first seven collaborative ex- exhibitions. And for a woman to do that in Paris at that time was, was, was a big deal. Right. But right is Morisot's own painting of her sister, Edma, called simply Reading. Both sisters were keen on the activity of reading. And in an undated letter, probably written between 1872 and 1874, when she was in her early thirties, Bert told her sister, I am reading Darwin. It is scarcely reading for a woman, even less a girl. At that date, the book is most likely to have been Darwin's The Descent of Man, which was first published in English in 1871 and subsequently translated into French in 1872. Two years later, in 1874, Durga himself mentioned in a letter that he had been reading another book by Darwin, The Expression of the Emotions in Man and Animals another strictly scientific work based on extensive first-hand research that had just been translated into French. We should note in passing that both Morisot and Degas chose to tackle these Darwin texts very soon after they became available in their own language in French, suggesting considerable eagerness on their part to find out about the latest Darwinian thinking. Again, that tells us a lot about these smart, educated, literate people who were the Impressionists. Like Henri Rouen and Ludovic Lepic, these two artists assumed that keeping up with the current scientific matter was part of being a modern adult in the modern culture. Morisot was a very liberated woman by the standards of her day, coming from an educated family who gave their daughters considerable license. Degas was a bachelor who could please himself and a wide reader and frequent letter writer, who appears to have led a largely secular life, and very rarely referred to religious matters in his correspondence and notebooks. Today, science is still often pitted against religion, rightly or wrongly. In the Impressionist milieu, there were many pointers that indicated a drift towards the former, science, rather than the latter, religion. I should mention at this point I'm currently writing a book that explores this aspect of the Impressionist group, which was also widely evident in French society as a whole in the 1860s and 1870s. Almost all the Impressionist artists in question shared a similar set of values in in this respect, although there is no evidence that they made explicitly atheistical works of art or attempted to spread their views to others. There are, however, some revealing gaps in their choice of subject matter as artists. For example, France is a country that is exceptionally well served by churches, chapels, monasteries, abbeys, cathedrals, and other ecclesiastical buildings. There are hundreds of thousands of them. Yet you will search in vain for these structures in the vast majority of Impressionist art. Nobody has ever actually put that on the table, but it's true. Um, This phenomenon is is unlikely to be a coincidence, and their avoidance of such buildings was underlined by their frequent depictions of conspicuous, purely secular structures, as in Monet's paintings of the Gare Saint-Lazare, and Sisley's depictions of iron bridges and engineering works. Rick Bretel, in his book on Pissarro and Pontoise, noted this phenomenon in in Pissarro's case when describing one of his canvases of the town, where the principal church in Pontoise is conspicuously marginalized by the artist. Bretel calls this a designification of ecclesiastical structures, a phrase that echoes my thinking. Now, for a friend, you all know this. Many of the themes I've outlined this afternoon come together most famously, uh, in in Degas' most famous wax sculpture, The Little Dancer, age 14, which is now one of the glories of this museum. We rushed off and had a look at it before we came into the auditorium. Untrained as a sculptor, Degas struggled with many of the technicalities involved, and seems to have uh, uh, um, brought in friends with more experience in these areas to help him. Originally intended for the 1880 1880 Impressionist exhibition, it was not until 1881 that Degas presented his largest three-dimensional work at the sixth Impressionist exhibition in Paris. It was openly admired uh, by some who saw it, including James McNeill Whistler, who for once was lost for words. <laughs> and simply gesticulated in front, of the quote, uh, in front of the glass case, that's a quote from the time, according to one witness. But the sculpture was widely attacked by a succession of critics who seemed to compete for the most withering comments Yet some of these comments must have been unexpected, unexpectedly flattering to the artist himself, given his interest in the sciences. The respected writer Charles Erfussy, for example, announced that The Little Dancer was a work of exact science. Not so much a work of art, but a work of exact science. And another reputable critic, Gustave Geffroy, noted it's physiological certainty, but also claimed that he, he, he sensed a wider dis- disdain for science in the Impressionist 1888 Impressionist exhibition as a whole. The more doubtful Elie de devoted a whole paragraph to the little dancer, acknowledging its naturalism, but kept comparing it to a monkey, an Aztec, and even an aborted fetus, which is so bizarre. It's out of, out of mind. Others challenged the decision to show it in an art gallery, and promised propose more suitable locations for the work, among them the Faculty of Medicine, or a Museum of Zoology, Anthropology, or Physiology. As I hope I've shown you, modernism at this period often meant embracing the sciences. And in 1881, Duggar the artist was clearly anxious to present himself as a man of science to emphasize this fact he also introduced he also introduced two pastel drawings in the 1881 exhibition this is next to the little dancer showing gaunt male figures apparently in a court of law his title for these works was physiognomy de criminel, criminal physiognomies. And as Douglas, Douglas Druick and Peter Zegers so incisively explained two decades ago, these figures specifically related to a currently popular belief that each human face or physiognomy reflected the inherent virtues and vices of the individual in question. In one of his notebooks, Dugar mentions the book by Johann Caspar Lavater, La physiognomie, which was among several texts that supported this dubious theory. The lean, undernourished features of the male at left would have characterized him as a criminal type, according to Lavater, an implication emphasized by Dugas' choice of dark colors for this figure in contrast to the man at right. For some visitors to the exhibition, the, the apparently undernourished and self-absorbed dancer in her box was also in a kind of prison-like constraint, and by association also suspect. This was, of course, pseudoscience, but at that date, such myths could take quickly and condemn innocence, such as most, uh, most ballet pupils by inference, in terms of assumed or mo- immorality or otherwise. In 1881, the Paris press had caught up with this new quasi-science, and now were now scattering what we might call fake scientific language. Um, I use that word in honor of, the, of Washington. Um, fake lang- in their reviews of the Impressionist exhibition, and of certain Degas works especially. Charles Fruissy described The Little Dancer, age 14, as a work of exact science, and noted Pissarro's analysis, sorry, m- m- meant Pissarro's quote, analysis, which decomposed the sun's rays and referred to secondary tones and the colors of the prism. This is critics trying to throw out the, the, art, the, the scientific language that they have to try and see, be, be up to speed. Joris Karl Huysmans also addressed Degas' sculpture. Arguing conversely that it reminded him of certain Madonnas that he had seen painted and dressed in robes, Rome, uh, uh, dressed in robes that he had once seen in Spain. This very curious pairing of science and religion became another trope in the critics' commentaries that I'm still trying to understand. But much opinion was focused on one of the two possibilities. Pissarro was mocked for his adoption of a Suro-like scientific technique, and putting into practice the theory that light is yellow and violet. We've already seen the wonderful picture on the right today, which is, of course, the four dancers from the National Gallery. As my colleagues in this gallery surely agree, Dugan was also an unusually experimental artist in a technical sense, for better or worse, The idea of experiment seems to lie beneath a lot of the things he did. Something you start and you don't know what the outcome is going to be. It's also the case that his inventive combinations of media and supports give conservators today a lot of headaches as the pages of Facture demonstrate. During his long career, Degas used almost every medium available to the contemporary artist and exploited almost every painting technique that was currently in use. He delighted in different kinds of paper with different kinds of tint, surface, and other characteristics. To complicate things further, he would sometimes combine more than one procedure with another in a single composition, which could lead to unprecedented mixed media works that depend on combinations of charcoal, chalk, water, uh, pastel, water-based colors, various kinds of paint, even in some modest scale images. When he found a combination that he particularly liked, as in his color monotypes of landscapes, with additions in pastel, he would shamelessly repeat the operation, making variations on it until he tired of this process and moved on to something new. On one occasion, Degas referred to his own work as a series of operations, which almost sounds like the language of an engineer or physicist. Well, as you as you must be already aware, we've moved into the late period of Dagas' art, the late 19th century, when he was still working as ambitiously and inventively as ever. Um, the examples on the screen both come from this late, um, day, late period and demonstrate the point I've just made. At right is the four dancers. Um, the canvas which Degas worked on at the, end of the National Gal- uh, at the end of the century is now in the National Gallery. Less, at left is one of several drawings of dancers that he made in his studio around this de- same date, and used as prototypes in several pastels and oil paintings, including Four Dances. This process of beginning on paper and proceeding to canvas reached back to the Renaissance and still represented Degas' traditional tr- technique. So in some sense, this is a very old-fashioned painting. It could almost have been painted by Veronese or Tintoretto or somebody. The use of photography by fine artists was still highly controversial at this period, even in the late 19th century. Degas had been fascinated by the medium for several decades and had shamelessly borrowed motifs from other photographers, such as Disderi, Muybridge, and Marais. In the case of the National Gallery's Four Dancers, he clearly used one of his own photographs shown at left as the model as the model when painting the figure at left in the National Gallery uh, canvas. You can, make link, you can make the link between the two yourself, I'm sure. Such step-by-step exploration in, into the unknown is also something that science depends on, as Degas would certainly have understood. Scientists investigating a little-studied little phenomenon will approach it in various ways, gathering clues from the physical evidence in front of them and contriving new tests and analyses that lead to fresh insights, and perhaps to new steps towards a different clarity. Scientists also reach out to the latest technology in their fields, which today operates at an unimaginably complex level in comparison with Degas day. He continued making art. In the early 20th, 20th century, when the young Picasso was roaming the streets of Paris, and Cubism burst on the, onto the world, at one time Picasso and Degas were living about 100 yards apart. Amazing, huh? Fortunately for us, Dugas's lifelong uh, long life ex- allowed him to experiment to an extraordinary extent and produce a vast corpus of work that still thrills us with its vivacity and its radicalism. Thanks to his embrace of the the sciences, he explored aspects of creativity that would have challenged the faint-hearted, even though he left behind some puzzling works that require an army of conservators to stabilize. So I end as I began with thanks to the Washington team for taking care of our man of science and is endlessly intriguing art. Thank you.
0: This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.